Welcome to the Judge John Hodgman Podcast. I'm Bailiff Jesse Thorne. We're in chambers this week, clearing the docket. And with me, as always, is legendary celebrity eater <laughs> and former food and wine columnist. Was that, was that what you were called? I was a food and non-wine alcohol columnist for Men's <laughs> Journal magazine from about 2000 until about 2005 or so maybe 2004, I bailed on, a, on an article about Texas barbecue. Do you know that? You bailed on it? I bailed on it because my editor was let go. Oh, no. And, uh, and we had a new editor-in-chief, and I was like, and I was writing for another magazine. I'm like, I already been down there. I already ate the barbecue. You can't take it out of my system. <laughs> <laughs> Not proud of it, but I was like, I don't feel like writing this anymore. But I did refuse to write about wine because writing about wine would test even the limits of my fraudulency. That yeah. was not something I was <laughs> Who's that delightful other laugher, Jesse Thorne? There's someone else here. We have a guest this week, chef, food writer, friend of our program, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. You might know his work from Serious Eats or from his first cookbook, The Food Lab. He has a brand new cookbook out now called The Walk. It's available wherever you get your books, including... Costco. That's when you know you've made it. When your book is available at Costco. Uh, Kenji, welcome to Judge John Hodgman. It's nice to talk to you again. Thank you. Well, that's when you know you have a good publicist. I think. Yeah. <laughs> your books are on pallets. Your books are on pallets. Yeah. Wow. That's the dream. Airports and pallets. That's when you know you've got a successful book. Yeah. And appropriately so, because Kenji, I have my copy of The Walk. It's so great. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's so unsurprisingly definitive, but it is also so unsurprisingly genial and helpful and inspirational. Well, thank you. Those are all things I was going for. I really, I really like it. And, you know, I got my walk out of the closet the other day just to play around because it's been, it's been some, it's been a while. It's been a while just to saute some of those uh, peel and eat shrimps. Mm. <laughs> Well, I hope I hope everything works for you. Stir fry. Stir fry is what I'm saying. Yeah, everything works for me. Well, as, as you point out, it's hard not to work because the walk is such a perfect piece of equipment. Why is that? Well, <laughs> is this a pitch for my book? Um, I mean, yeah, it's I'm setting you up. That's the, this whole <laughs> episode is, Kenji. You understand what doing publicity for a book is, right? <laughs> Um, you know, it's in its, it's in its versatility. So there, you know, there's, there's a wide range of techniques you can use in a walk. Um, I don't, I don't have to go into every single one of them, but, you know, stir frying, steaming, deep frying, pan frying, all, all kinds of things you can do in a walk. Um, and, uh, it's inexpensive. It's, if you get the right one, it's pretty indestructible. Um, and you know, more than anything, it's really, I think the, the where it shines best is when you're trying to feed a group of people, whether it's, you know, friends or, or your family, um, quickly, uh, that's where it really shines best. You know, most of the recipes in the book, it's a single piece of equipment that you have on the stovetop. I think the book only calls for, uh, preheating the oven once, uh, in one recipe, um, everything else is completely on the stovetop with one pan. Um, and most of the recipes are, you know, 30 minutes or less. It's for like a weeknight meals, but they're also flashy mm -hmm. and also not too hot. That was something that I didn't even think of till I read uh, the introduction to your book. Like the walk, you're in there, you're out, you heat up the kitchen only so much and you're done. Mm -hmm. And when you're coming into spring or summertime, that's really valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Kenji's career, the map of Kenji's career involves uh, growing acclaim. Uh, over the beginning of the career as he creates 
uh, definitive and often very complicated versions of uh, classic recipes, figuring out exactly the best uh, ways to uh, make particular things. His famous using science, using, using science. science, using yes. science exactly, and and great taste. Uh, then I think his his uh, his fame has exploded recently as he's he has become a YouTube celebrity uh, for strapping a GoPro to his head at one o'clock in the morning while he's making like a, <laughs> a grilled cheese sandwich. Um, so I think the the nice thing about the walk is it really marries those two streams. Uh, you can make something that is uh, that gives you a little bit of a nice fancy feeling. Uh, but you can also do it on a weeknight for your family without too much hassle. Yeah, when you see the inside of Kenji's kitchen, you're like, oh, it's just a guy. Like, that's yeah. all this science. You're worried that he's, he's living in a lab somewhere in space. Yeah, I think a lot of people <laughs> thought he he worked in a sort of beaker-type environment right. uh, from the Muppets. No, I work in a in a home kitchen with a, yeah, with a six-month-old and a five-year-old running around. Um, no, I mean, you know, I think that the point of the science and the technique, um, understanding it, you know, th th there's really long recipes. I never make my food that way. You know, the, the point is really, the, of those recipes, the really long ones um, are just to sort of illustrate all the different principles. Um, because once you understand those things and sort of have them under your belt, that for me, I think the idea is to try and empower people to feel that they have the confidence uh, to stray from recipes in the kitchen and to cook with what they have to cook within the constraints they have uh because you know that understanding if, if you're if you're bound to a recipe you can only do it that one way but if you understand the technique uh then you can stray from there and if you make mistakes you can recover there's all it's sort of well i i think it empowers you and it allows you to um uh cook in a more free way which um you know ironically is, is improvisational it, even once you, yeah once you yeah get exactly the techniques down yeah. exactly yeah, which is, you know, people think my first book was very prescriptivist because it was so complicated, um, which is which was ironic to me because I meant it to be sort of the opposite. I meant I meant it more to be something where, yeah, you you understand these things and then you can can decide which ones you want to follow. Kenji, what's an example of a technique uh, that is a a building block that you help people work through in the walk? Um, well. I'd say the most, you know, the most important thing with wok cooking, um, particularly when you're stir frying, is um, is prep organization. You know, and and you don't really think of that as a technique because it's not like you know it doesn't involve heat, it doesn't involve whatever. It just involves proper organization and thinking through um, what you're going to do before you start doing it. Um, and so, you know, the way I try and illustrate that in the book is there's well, there's a lot of photos of bowls that you should have ready before you start cooking, um, and in virtually every sort of stir fry recipe where you're going to be working quickly uh, in one of the steps, it tells you how to prep all the ingredients. And then it says, here are the bowls you should have ready. Like you should have the garlic and ginger together in this one little bowl. You should have the scallion pieces and the peanuts together in this second bowl. You should have an empty tray here to put, to transfer the stuff to when you're done cooking it. That way, you know, once you start cooking, you're able to add things in quick succession. You don't have to worry about running back to your cutting board. And I think that's where a lot of people end up tripping up in um, stir fries. Uh, they end up leaving the food in there for too long, where it ends up sort of stewing in its own juices uh, because they're not properly prepared. So I'd say, um, yeah, for wok cooking, preparation is the is the uh, the key step. I think that we've been done a grave disservice in the world of home cooking by watching movies. Because in the movies, mm -hmm. people are always, they'll have a montage of a person cooking. Mm -hmm. And it's always like, I've got the, the pan going, and now I'm just going to chop this up and throw it in at the last second and then do a twirl. Or whatever it is, when in fact all that stuff should have been done before you even turn on the heat in the pan. 
mise en place. Yeah. That preparation that makes the cooking calm as opposed to, I mean, it's never, when, when you do that in real life, it's not romantic or fun or a little <laughs> dance. It's like, oh my God, or whatever. Why didn't I cut up these scallions? Right. Right. Uh, you know, and that, and that multiplies when you have, when you have kids in the house that, that are going to interfere at inopportune moments, kids, kids and pets. Yeah. In the, in the parlance of the video games, those are chaos multipliers. Yes. <laughs> Kenji is America's number one advocate for uh, little stainless steel prep bowls. Um, <laughs> yes. Like on TV, the other thing that you see on TV is these like real pretty, uh, glass bowls. And mm-hmm. I know that if I bought even one of those little pretty bowls, uh, it, I, I would have glass shards across my kitchen within, uh, Oh yeah. Week. I mean, well, I mean, I can tell you from having worked, um, a number of years at, um, America's test kitchen that when we shot those TV series and we had those, uh, glass, those glass prep bowls, that finding bowls in the prep kitchen that didn't have cracks on them so that we could put them on uh, TV was, <laughs> was, was a challenge. Um. Well, that's because in a commercial kitchen, you have your prep bowl, you have your mise en place, you have all your little ingredients portioned down to those little bowls, which for a tidy weird like me is very satisfying. But then traditionally, as soon as you put the, put the ingredient into the wok or whatever it is, you throw that bowl on the floor as hard as you can, right? I mean, that's what you do. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what I do at home. I do. I mean, I, I like the little metal prep bowls because they stack and they don't take up a lot of space um, and they're light and you can do whatever you, they're indestructible. Um, yeah. You, in the commercial kitchen, you would have what are called like half hotel pans. So half pans, ninth pans, little, little rectangular things that, yeah. that fit into inserts uh, um, in your refrigerator. You wouldn't necessarily have an array of bowls for every dish, but if the same, if I'm making the same dish over and over and every dish calls for sliced scallions, I would have a little ninth pan full of sliced scallions that I can then re- reach into each time I need them for a recipe. Kenji, I have, I, I have a very important question mm-hmm. with regard to the wok. I was looking in the book. I could not see either a recipe or a technique for making grape nuts with poached eggs in the wok. Is it possible? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> this is a Actually, challenge. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I've never had grape nuts with poached eggs. <laughs> Let me give you some context. <laughs> right. First of all, when I say grape nuts and poached eggs, what is your initial reaction? If you put, could put a word to it. Um, my initial reaction is actually that that sounds interestingly Interesting. delicious sounding. Um, right. I, yeah. I can see how I can see that working very well. We got a listener named Dave out there who's been okay. pushing grape nuts and poached eggs on both of us, but to a degree, Jesse, and I hope you're not insulted on me personally. Yeah, there's a little true. bit of a grape nut, a a, what, a Greg nut. That's what I've ended up calling them, <laughs> a Greg nut beef between me and listener Dave. He really okay. wants me to try them. His family thinks they're gross. I I was inclined to agree with them. Jesse thinks they sound intriguing. We're going to try them on this program, as promised, mm-hmm. sometime during this program. That's a tease. But I don't think either of us have ever, ever poached an egg in our life. Kenji, you have any tips for poaching an egg? Well, first of all, I think the wok is the best pe- vessel for poaching an egg, uh, <laughs> for the same reason that it's the best vessel for deep frying, which is that it ha- you know the, the flared sides allows you to get to the bottom of it with a a spider or you know or a, a strainer mm-hmm. um, without having to kind of dig deep down. Um, so it gives you a much better angle for maneuvering foods and picking things up gently. Um, but my main my main tip for poached eggs. So first of all, um, you do want to use very fresh eggs. Um, because as eggs age, the the membrane that holds the the white together, yeah. um, the in, interior membrane will start to break down, um, and that's going to cause sort of like that ghosting of you know the, the white the wispy whites that that flow away from the egg yolk. Um, the other thing I recommend is straining your eggs. By the a- way, wisp, wispy whites was the mm-hmm. alternate name for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, also, <laughs> um, I recommend straining the egg. So you can do it in a fine mesh strainer, or you can do it in a um, in a colander. Um, but yeah, you, you you break the eggs into a bowl and then transfer them into a strainer and just kind of swirl them around a little bit so that all of the really watery excess whites that are outside of that tighter membrane oh, uh, get drained right. away. And then you transfer it back into a bowl and then put it into your um, your water. And your water should be just at a bare sub simmer. So, you know, a couple bubbles here and there. Um, Any and that's vinegar about in there? I know that sometimes... I, I don't do vinegar. So you, you can do vinegar if you like the texture, the flavor that it gives. I I tend to find that it makes the, the eggs a little bit sort of chalkier, the mm. texture. So I, I don't do vinegar, but I know some people like it. Um, you can put salt in it, but, it, you know, it, it, just to uh, season the egg, but you can also right. just put salt on uh, at the end. So I usually just use plain water. Um, and if, you know, once you get, you you can just sort of pour your egg gently into a, into a pot of subsimmering water or a wok full of subsimmering water. Um, and then once it starts to set, you kind of gently move it around to make sure that it's not sticking to the bottom. Um, once you sort of move on, Pat, when, once you want to get to like sort of expert mode, you can swirl a little vortex into the water and then yeah. pour the egg sort of towards the center. And then what happens is it it kind of takes on like a little a sort of a comet shape, you know, the, the white trail yeah. behind it. So you get more of that even shape as opposed to having one side flat. It's like what I see on those Instagram accounts I follow. Yeah. The poached yeah, egg channels it. and stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, look, if, if we can just get this thing to work at all, I'll be happy, but we're going to come back to poached eggs, Greg, Greg nuts, I should say. Uh, but meanwhile, Jesse Thorne, I believe we've got quite a few uh, food disputes to settle. Here's a case from Chelsea. My friends, Danielle and Riley and I are the cooking crew. <laughs> The crew began when Danielle taught us to cook one of her family favorites, Bonsio. We now meet monthly, trying our hands at cuisines from around the world. Here's our dispute. When juicing a lemon or any citrus, Riley lives and dies by an implement I call the yellow squeezy boy. Okay, I'm familiar with it. Yeah, I think we all know the squeezy boy. Danielle, however, is a proponent of the squeeze-by-hand method and scoffs when Riley looks for that YSB. I also own a wooden reamer, but I don't want to even introduce that to the conversation. Please ask Mr. Lopez-Alt for his effective citrus juice extraction power rankings. And so we have a photo here, Kenji, from mm -hmm. uh, Chelsea. Uh, of the yellow squeezy boy, which of, right. is of course a, a pretty common yellow uh, citrus squeezer. Yeah, a class two lever, I think. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's a, I'm sure everyone's seen it. Or is it class it. three? I don't know. It's, what, uh, it's some it's, class of lever. It's a pretty high class lever. I would definitely <laughs> say it's classy yeah. lever. Uh, if you don't know what it looks like, go to the show page at maximumfun.org or check out our Instagram account at, at Judge John Hodgman. Um, compared to a wooden uh, uh, reamer, mm -hmm. which you With shove right into the- With some stains on it. Yeah, that's a good eye. And then, of course, you have, I presume, Chelsea's Hand, which mm -hmm. is not available in stores, but uh, many of us come equipped with one of our own. What do you think is the most juicy of methods? <laughs> uh, so the most juicy is the wooden reamer. And, and you know, so I, I worked uh, in one of the restaurants I worked at, one of the jobs of the of the of the youngest, the newest cook. Um, which I was for about six months, was to juice citrus every morning um, for the entire line. So I would go through like a case of lemons, a case of limes, and a case of oranges every day, juicing them. Um, so I have a lot of experience with juicing. Um, and in in that effort, um, I also tested this exact thing um, to see which one produced the most juice. 
uh, and which one produced the best flavor. Um, the wooden reamer is going to produce by far the most juice. You're going to be able to really get it into the cracks. You're going to be able to pull out the most juice from the in, from the inside of the orange, um, especially if it's a fresh wooden reamer, which this one doesn't. Wooden reamers do uh, wear out over time, and the, and the one in the photo looks like it has a very blunt tip, so it probably doesn't work as well. Um, so I would replace my wooden reamer. Um, you know, when I was doing that many, I would replace it every three months or so. These days, I replace it every few years. Um, the lever is the easiest um, to use, of course, because that um, that's the one, you know, I pull it out when I want my daughter to juice the lemons for me because um, she can do it. Um, it's also the least messy. You know, the wooden reamer, you need a separate strainer because it's, all the pulp is going to get in there. Juice is going to fly over the counter. Um, so the, the, the lever is less messy. Um, one of the advantages of the lever style over the hand, um, aside from the sheer power of it, is that um, with the lever, when you put the fruit in there the correct way, which is with the cut side facing down, um, mm. the opposite of the way that it looks like it's supposed to go, when you put it with the cup side, cut side facing down um, and you squeeze down on it, it kind of inverts the rind. And what it does is it actually squeezes out some of the essential oils from the rind as well. Um, so you'll get a lot, as opposed to just squeezing it by hand where you're really just getting the juice and not much of the oils. Um, the essential oils have a lot of the flavor that differentiates what, you know, what makes a lemon taste like a lemon and an orange taste like an orange. Um, so you'll get a lot more of that, um, that aroma using the lever versus the hand method. So of the three, I would say, you know, all of them work, especially if you have very powerful hands. Um, but uh, the reamer is the best, but messiest. The, uh, the yellow squeezy boy is, uh, is a good compromise and the hand um, I would not recommend. How about that, Danielle? Take that. <laughs> Danielle, I'm sure your family recipe for bonseo is really good. I've never had bonseo. Uh, do you know anything about it, Kenji? Uh, I'm just from what I've had in restaurants and in Vietnam. It's a, um, from what I understand, it's a, it's a, like a crepe, sort of like a crispy crepe slash omelet that's typically stuffed with like mung beans and, and shrimp. But I, I think the, it's, it's made with a thin batter with uh, eggs and rice flour and it gets kind of these lacy crispy edges to it. Well, I had a PS from Chelsea also mentioning that she, uh, she is a graduate of Yale university as I am. Mm-hmm. And that a friend of hers lived in the same house that I lived in at 16 Edgewood Avenue. So here's what I'm saying. Chelsea, I've not been in that house for a long time. I would like to go check out my basement room. Why don't you and the cooking crew figure out who's living there now, and I will meet you there uh, for a cooking crew dinner of bonsaio with some <laughs> good, juicy, wooden-reamed uh, citrus uh, as necessary. So her her lemon-squeezing hands have touched the walls of a house that you lived in? Is that... Yes. And now... If you touch your screen, we have an even closer connection. <laughs> I'm not touching my screen. But cooking crew, up your game with that wooden reamer. You got to you gotta get a new one. Here's a question from Nathan in East Lansing, Michigan. What makes a grilled cheese? I like to add fun things into my grilled cheeses like prosciutto, brisket, pork, blueberry jam, pineapple, honey mustard, maybe even a tomato or two. Not all in the same sandwich. This is in addition to using more creative cheeses, like a goat cheese and brie. My partner insists that the only thing that belongs in a grilled cheese is cheese, bread, and butter. Kenji, do you have an opinion on this? Yeah, well, this feels like a trap, first of all. Um, but I'm <laughs> oh, yeah. also assuming that yes. the partner That's the theme of our program, <laughs> the partner reads Reddit, which is where this like you know, the 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 copy pasta about um uh, from the angry guy about uh how anything other than uh, adding anything other than cheese to your grilled cheese makes it a makes it a melt 
Um, if you, ah. if you just search up, if you search for like grilled cheese melt copy pasta, it'll it'll pop up. Um, it's a it's an infamous rant that I think is completely wrong, um, and has and has ruined the discourse on grilled cheese online because every time you discuss grilled cheese online, this comes up. Somebody thinks they're clever for reposting it. Um, You're saying we got tricked. <laughs> <laughs> we got tricked like that time someone asked if a hot dog was a sandwich or that other time when those those two friends tricked me into saying I blame Kyle over and over again. I'm sure that's some internet meme that I got tricked into. Here's my concern, John. My biggest concern, honestly, is that like that hot dog thing, we've accidentally stumbled into something that people care about. Uh, that's what I'm worried about here. <laughs> about grilled cheese? Um. Yeah. Well, don't worry, Kenji. They don't have your email. They have my email. So you can say whatever you want. All right. So- Grilled cheese growing up was, you know, Wonder Bread and American cheese for me, um, cooked in butter. Uh, these days, I'm so, I still do that sometimes. Well, Wonder Bread doesn't exist anymore, but I, you know, I use supermarket Does bread. Does it not exist anymore? What I don't think it? so. It or maybe exists. It, disapp- it exists at my in-law's oh. house. <laughs> Thank you, Jennifer Marmer. Okay. All right. Maybe, maybe it disappeared for a while and came back. I don't know. Um, or maybe I'm just thinking of Twinkies. It's just, it's um, not as, pre- it's not as prevalent in American It's not as prevalent. As it yeah. Was, I don't see sure. it at the supermarket very frequently, at least. Yeah. Um, you know, these days I, I might mix up the cheese. I might add something, but any, at any time in grilled cheese history, I feel you could have gone or in diner history, you can go to a diner and get a grilled cheese and they will offer to put bacon in it or a tomato slice in it. And it's still a grilled cheese, right? So, um, you know, by, by that logic, to, if, if it's on a menu and if it's understood that it's a grilled cheese, um, I don't think it makes any sense to suggest that adding something to a grilled cheese makes it not a grilled cheese. Um, I would say that the cutoff comes when the ingredient inside uh, is more prevalent than the cheese, you know, at mm. that point, maybe it becomes a melt, you know, if you put a burger patty in there and it's thicker than the cheese, but if you put like a few crumbles of ground beef, it's still a grilled cheese with ground beef, you know, it's a grilled, <laughs> it's a grilled cheese with crumbles. I think yeah. as long as the cheese is melted, you're griddling the bread in either butter or mayo, uh, and the, the other, uh, fillings don't overwhelm the cheese. Um, it's still a grilled cheese. Let me ask you this, Kenji. My uh, pal, pal of John's as well, Mariel Reyes, used to work at Max Fun, still comes to Max Fun Con every year. Um, Mariel worked in a grilled cheese institution for some time that was very deeply committed to mayonnaise as the medium for grilling a grilled cheese sandwich rather than mm-hmm. butter. That's a um, big grilled cheese internet hack that I that I have uh, seen before. Go ahead. Yeah. If you haven't ever made grilled cheese with mayonnaise, it can seem somewhat insane, even if you're a mayonnaise enthusiast like my friend John Hodgman. Mm. Uh, I've done it. It works great. Great. What are the relative values of those two, you know, those two fats? So mayonnaise, I think the main advantage of mayonnaise is that it's immediately spreadable out of the fridge. So you don't have to, um, you know, if you're not the kind of person who keeps butter at room temperature, which I'm not, um, typically, uh, you don't have to wait for your butter to, um, melt. Uh, and so mayonnaise is very easy to spread. It's easy to get an even layer on there. So your bread toasts evenly, um, and the egg, uh, the protein content in there also helps it brown a little better. Um, that said, you know, I, I had a, uh, a discussion with this, uh, about this with, um, the, uh, the late, um, Josh Ozersky, um, who had a lot of opinions on grilled cheese and hamburgers, but and what things he, in general. And things in general. Yes. yes. Um, our All interaction, right. you know, our discussion of this ended with me talk, with, making this point about how mayonnaise is more easily spreadable um, and how I never keep butter at room temperature. Um, and his response was that um, softened butter is why God invented the microwave. Um, so he does have a point there. 
Um, you know, it, it, there there is a little bit of a flavor difference. Obviously, you know, the mayonnaise does have a slight bit of a tang to it, but I think you'd be hard pressed to really taste that um, uh, unless you're really going side by side. It's not something that immediately jumps out when you're eating it. Um, the one thing I would say is I've tried doing this with QP mayonnaise. Um, and I would not recommend that. There's something oh, in the QP mayonnaise that gets a really funky flavor uh, when you heat it up. So. Well, because uh, QP is a, a sort of iconic Japanese brand of mayonnaise right. that is sort of a, a cult mayonnaise among us mayo heads. Right, right, right. And there's the American <laughs> QP, and then there's the authentic Japanese QP. And I believe the authentic Japanese QP has MSG in it. Yeah, I, I don't think it's the MSG that does it though. Um, mm. I think I think it also. I, also I haven't sweeter. looked at the instruction. Yeah, it, it is a little sweeter. It's a little sort of tangier. Um, I think it also has um, a modified food starch in it, something that oh, yeah. um, thickens it a little bit. Um, and I, it might be that. I, I'm really not sure exactly what it is, but but it gets a weird, weird, weird flavor. I mean, I actually I suggest you do try it just so you can experience this weird flavor for yourself. I'm but, already doing uh, Greg nuts today. You know, maybe tomorrow <laughs> I'll do a Cupid cheese. I think people get so worked up about this online and off because this is something that a lot of people uh, in this country have grown up with, you know, mm -hmm. and if you grew up eating it a certain way, it feels like they're insulting your your uh, uh, upbringing to suggest, um, uh, no, you're eating you're eating grilled cheese the wrong way. Yeah. Nobody talks or, mess about my Nana. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll say if you put uh, a br brisket on your grilled cheese, though, you were raised wrong. Sorry, friend. <laughs> no, it's fine. Sounds great to me. I honestly, I've been just been thinking I would about call that, that thing. A but I would call that a brisket melt at that point. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. fair. I've been thinking about that uh, those ground beef crumbles. That sounds great to me too. <laughs> Judge Hodgman, we have to poach some eggs. So, uh, do you want to take a quick break so we can do that when we come back? We'll eat those. Uh, what's it called? Greg nuts. Greg nuts. Poached eggs with grape nuts, invented by Dave. Greg had nothing to do with it. Let's go hear from our partners. You're listening to Judge John Hodgman. I'm bailiff Jesse Thorne. Of course, the Judge John Hodgman podcast always brought to you by you, the members of MaximumFun.org. Thanks to everybody who's gone to MaximumFun.org slash join. And you can join them by going to MaximumFun.org slash join. The Judge John Hodgman podcast is also brought to you this week by Babbel. Okay, it's 2024, 2024. Oh, if hindsight were 2020, I I don't know what I would have done differently. All I know is that I'm taking every day in this year and trying to get better a little bit every day. That's what you do. That's the way progress is made, step by step, day by day, bird by bird. And that's the way it is when you're learning anything, especially a new language with Babbel. And if Babbel can help you start speaking language in just three weeks, Imagine what you could do in the rest of this whole year. Don't pay hundreds of dollars to private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts, real human beings, to help you start speaking a new language in as little as one, two, three weeks. Studies from Michigan State University, Yale University, and others continue to prove that Babbel is better. And that's not just the Yale football team putting their thumb on the scale because they love learning Indonesian from Babbel. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Take that, Yale, I guess. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription 
but this is only for our listeners, at babble.com slash Hodgman. The Judge John Hodgman podcast is also brought to you this week by Aura. A-U-R-A. It's a simple but meaningful gift that you can give your mom or your dad or your step-grandparent or your uncle or your friend or anyone that you want to keep connected in your life who might not live near you. It's a digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pics of all the things that those friends can't be there for, from family vacations to grandkids' graduation to whatever. I have one of these, and I got one for my dad, and I got one for my mother-in-law, and it's amazing. We look at the photos all day long, and we're able to easily update their Aura frames so they see all the latest pictures from our lives as well. It comes with unlimited storage, simple controls on the frame. You can upload as many photos as you want and your mom or your dad or your stepdad or your stepmom or your friend or whatever can pick the perfect one. And it takes only about two minutes to set up, seriously. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, uh, The Strategist and Wired Magazine. Right now you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. For a limited time, listeners can get $20 off their best-selling frame with code Hodgman. That's A-U-R-A frames.com, promo code Hodgman. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, it's Judge John Hodgman. Bailiff Jesse Thorne is currently poaching his egg as we speak. Now, I've just finished making my poached egg, and I have put it on a half serving of grape nuts because I have only one egg. And I've added Cholula hot sauce. By the way, Kenji, while we wait for Jesse to finish, mm -hmm. your poached egg advice was spectacular. Oh, good. I'm glad it worked. <laughs> I did not have a mesh strainer. Uh -huh. First of all, it's the only successful poached egg I've ever made. Is it the only poached egg you've ever made? No, I've tried many times before. Okay, good. And I've used like silicone cups and other mm -hmm. gadgets and gizmos. Mm -hmm. Not necessary. This is a perfect poached egg. Great. And what kind of what kind of vessel did you poach it in? So first of all, I want to say that I did not have a mesh strainer. Right. But I did I was smart enough to bring over a, a cocktail julep strainer. Okay, yeah, perfect. And I cracked the egg over that. I put that over a little mug. I mm -hmm. cracked the egg over that. Mm -hmm. And there must have been two teaspoons of liquid that mm -hmm. just went drained out. That you then beat with a butter knife. That I then beat with a butter knife and drank yeah. raw, of course. No, but I mean, it, it. the egg was much firmer and, and mm -hmm. as a result, it happened to be a very fresh egg. And I did not have a walk here at my office that's back at my house. So instead I used a, a deep skillet pan mm -hmm. um, so that I could get around the egg more easily. And it worked out very well. Nice. And this yolk is perfect at just, just four minutes. Not runny, but still liquid. It's the best poached egg I've ever made. I bet it's going to be great to eat. I've added some Cholula. Grape nuts. Yeah, well, the grape nuts, that's the mystery thing. <laughs> I do love grape nuts. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, poached egg with grape nuts and a dash of soy sauce and chili oil would be good. That's what I would go with. All right. Bailiff Jesse is still poaching his egg, but I am going to try these Greg nuts now. Jennifer Marmer. Yes. I am warning you and all the listeners, I'm about to take a bite of food on Mike. Thank you. Content warning has been provided. One, two, three, block your ears.
Hmm. Good. Content warning for listeners. I'm having another bite now. <laughs> I feel like this is a comment on my YouTube videos where I, where I frequently get comments from uh, uh, people who have me- misophonia. I think that's what it's called. Yes. Uh, because I always take bites of my food without warning uh, at the end of my videos. Um, oh, no. We've it apparently learned. grosses some people out. You know. We've learned. <laughs> misophonia is a real thing. Uh-huh. People don't care for it. I will withhold my judgment till Jesse is ready. Okay. <laughs> I can't, so I don't remember the last time I had grape nuts. I think the last time I had it was um, probably at the Serious Eats office when I had um, a friend who's seriously into uh, grape nut ice cream, vanilla yes. ice cream with grape nuts. Um, and I can't remember, are grape nuts themselves slightly sweet or not? Are they are they sweet in the way that like, you know, like wheat is sweet, a little bit sweet? They're a sweet wheat treat. Right. They're not grapes and they're not nuts. They're not they're grapes grape and they're nuts. not nuts. And here is Jesse Thorne. Jesse, I have... Poached my egg. I have complimented Kenji for his poached egg techniques, which served me extremely well. For the first time, I was able to poach an egg right now on the spot on live podcasting. (laughs) I put the egg on an appropriate amount of grape nuts. I added Cholula. I had not one, but two bites on microphone, having given the listeners a content warning and all the misophonics could turn down their uh, podcatchers. I have my opinion now. Jesse, are are you about to take your bite? Okay. Content warning. Jesse Thorne is taking a bite. Not the best. No, no. (laughs) I mean, I'm not saying it's not horrible. I think my greatest concern was that the kind of um, sweet wheat bread flavor of the grape nuts would be a little much with the egg. I think if I put a bunch of Cholula on it, I'd probably be happier because I like Cholula. I like the texture combination, mm-hmm. but I'm not, despite liking grape nuts a lot, it tasted a little bit too much like uh, like a like a sweet brown bread for me mm. uh, with the egg. I would have preferred a more, um, a less malty brown flavor with my egg. So tell me this, my, my wife... Um... Adriana, she likes cinnamon raisin bagels with scallion cream cheese on them. So weird. Would she would she like a poached egg with grape nuts? She might very well. Yeah, she might very well. I mean, like, I don't like sweet bread in general, but like I said, I do like like I eat grape nuts most mornings. We have a breakfast cereal sponsor at Maximum Fun, and I eat their cereal sometimes as well. But most mornings, I'm a grape nuts guy. Have been for for a long time. A uh, little grape nuts goes a long way and um, uh, straight through your intestines and so forth. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I do think, I mean, it might be my personal taste. I would say this though. I definitely wouldn't characterize it as gross. Dave, this is a heartbreaker. And I'm speaking to the listener, Dave, because Jesse Thorne was the one who seemed most enthused about trying this concoction. I was hoping he was going to love it. Because Kenji, I'm going to weigh in. I didn't care for it. All right. Myself, I didn't care for it either. I got to say, I love grape nuts and I love eggs. These are two great tastes that to me did not go great together. It made me wish there was cornflakes that were as crunchy as grape nuts. <laughs> and and how are we sure that you're not just saying this because you are grape nuts fans and there is currently supply chain issues with grape nuts and you're trying not to cause a run on them? Oh, you think you, you think I don't have sources for my grape nuts, Kenji? You think I don't have schemes and plans to acquire grape nuts? Jesse's got pallets, pallets and pallets of grape nuts. 
Dave, the ruling is in. Not for me, not for Jesse, but you like what you like. Go ahead and enjoy it. Don't gross your kids out, though. Don't gross your kids out. If they're grossed out by it, go take it in another room. Because it is, it is a little out there. All right. On the subject of eggs, now that that matter is settled, uh, Chris writes from Winchester, Massachusetts. My wife makes scrambled eggs by cracking them into a coffee mug and mixing them with a butter knife. She says it's more efficient than whisking them in a bowl as it produces a lower volume of dirty dishes. She also claims eggs don't need any salt, and I shouldn't include it when I make eggs for the family. I disagree. All right, so we have two issues here, Ken, mm-hmm. that are, that are uh, important to me personally. Mm-hmm. One is I sympathize with Chris's wife because when he says it produces a lower volume of dirty dishes, what I'm thinking he means here is that or what she means rather, is that if you beat your eggs in a coffee cup, you can just throw that into a dishwasher. It doesn't take up much space. Mm-hmm. Where as soon as you bring out a bowl and a whisk, bowls, especially mixing bowls, are notorious space hogs in uh, automatic dishwashers. In mm-hmm. my family, that's immediate hand washing material. There's no way that's going to fit There's in the no dishwasher. There's no way that's going to go into the it's dishwasher. It's either two dishwasher yeah. runs that day or you're hand washing the bowls. I, I sometimes use the bowls inverted to keep the um, the baby bottles upside down from flip, you know, the light plastic baby bottles from flipping. Up. Oh, mm. dishwasher hack. I like that. So yeah, we have some, yeah. Okay. That's great. So in that case, you, that's a double duty. The bowls are keeping yeah. the bottles down. Um, before we get to the salt, what do you think about beating an egg in a coffee cup with a butter knife? Well, so I would, I would suggest, first of all, swapping out the butter knife for a pair of chopsticks. I think that'll get Mm. you, um, more effective beating. Um, you know, if, if, if you don't have chopsticks at home, then whatever butter knife, I guess is okay. I don't know why you wouldn't use a fork. Um, but you know, but it, but it really depends on your goal, you know, with, with, with beating the eggs, like, you know, for, a fluffy American style scrambled eggs, you know, where they kind of come out, you know, fluffy and relatively dry as opposed to sort of custardy and dense. Um, uh, one of the, one of the keys to getting to that goal is, um, well, using relatively high heat in your pan so that the eggs puff up as they hit, um, but also trying to incorporate air into them as you're beating them. Um, so, you know, if, if that's your goal, then using a bowl and a whisk is going to get more air or a bowl and a fork is going to get more air into the eggs. Um, if you don't really care for that, then sure. Beat them in whatever you want. You know, sometimes I, I like to just pour my, dump my eggs into the pan and, you know, stir them around in the pan a little bit. So they're kind of half scrambled and, you know, it just depends what you want. Then you don't have to wash the, the, the mug or the butter knife at all. Yeah. Because yeah. you didn't use them. All right. Yeah. Or you just, you know, get a, get a McDonald's sandwich and you don't have to wash anything. I don't know much about Chris's wife because Chris, first of all, refuses to even name her in his letter. <laughs> second of all, second of all, I think Chris's point of view is that she just wants to get this over with because mm-hmm. there are, there are kids involved. I added this letter down, but he's like, please order my wife to stop serving our kids egg leather. So I think, <laughs> I think her goal might be just get it over with as quickly as possible. But well, yeah, I, I think you should also ask the kids their opinion on this. That's true. You should. I mean, the people who are eating the food off to have to weigh in, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But now, Kenji, last year you uh, you put a revolutionary scrambled egg method out on the internet. Uh, the internet shut down for several days. Could handle the traffic. <laughs> <laughs> it involved a potato starch slurry, right? Um, and it made very creamy eggs, right. really creamy eggs. Like it was incredible. 
But I did notice then, and I'll bring it up now, that you salted the eggs before beating, which I had always been told mm-hmm. was a was a no and then another no, what they call a no-no. Right. Right. Um, because it would make the eggs watery or some or bad or something. Mm-hmm. But I've since seen recipes aside from yours that say, yeah, go ahead and do it. What's your opinion there? Uh, well, it's not opinion. It's it's fact based on testing. Um, ah, what a <laughs> um, relief. Salting your eggs before beating them is fine. Um, I think the idea that they turn watery comes from the fact that when you when you salt them before uh, beating them, the actual raw beaten eggs will be thinner, um, especially if you let it sit like for, you know, overnight, um, they'll mm-hmm. become very, very thin. Um, uh, you know, the, and the reason that happens is because there's proteins that are denaturing um, from the salt. Um, however, what that means is that when they actually cook, um, the, you know, the protein matrix that forms and begins to tighten as the eggs, uh, as the eggs get heated up and, and, and start to set, um, what can happen is, is, is that if you overcook the eggs a little bit, you know, that, that protein matrix is going to tighten up really hard and eventually it's going to start weeping, squeezing moisture out um, and the eggs are going to start weeping. Uh, and so that can lead to eggs that are either um, tougher than they should be or eggs that once you put them on a plate, uh, water will kind of start to weep out of them. Um, salting them in advance will actually prevent that from happening. So if you do side-by-side eggs that are salted in advance versus eggs that are salted after cooking, um, on the plate, the eggs that are salted in advance will be more tender uh, and also retain moisture uh, better. Um, You know, that said, if you don't want salt in your eggs, you know, um, you know, I mean, don't invite me to breakfast, but (laughs) also, you know, that's, that's your decision. That's (laughs) people have different salt tolerances. John, Um, you know how I like to do my eggs? No, no fat, no heat, only salt. I just salt them <laughs> down the hatch. Oh, you bake you bake them in a in a salt crust. No, no heat. Crack the I, crust. I just oh. go ahead and I just go ahead and open the old jaw. Open the pie. Throw roll. some salt in there and eat a whole egg. I'll eat the and, I eat the shell too. Do you do you like squish them around from your between your teeth with your cheek muscles to yeah. perform a slurry or do you just uh. Uh, yeah, yeah, it'll do a slurry, but the, it's important to have the shell in there because you got to have roughage. That's what a doctor right. will tell you. <laughs> so Chris's wife, who I know has a name and is a whole human being in her own right, it sounds to me and and uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Kenji. It should be our it should be the order of this court that you should go ahead and salt those eggs before you beat them, and that you the butter knife is not a, a ideal implement for aerating those eggs especially if you're going to be compromising by using a, a coffee mug to begin with. Mm-hmm. Maybe if you get a, 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 one of your larger mugs and a fork or some chopsticks, uh, that might lend to a better texture, ultimately. Yeah, right? like a large bowl-shaped mug made of metal. A large bowl-shaped mug made of metal and ideally without a handle. All right, let's move on. <laughs> Here's a case from Ala, or possibly Aya. When I make a pot of soup, I let it cool on the counter overnight. My husband is convinced it should be put in the refrigerator immediately for fear of it growing bacteria. I come from a long line of hearty Eastern Europeans who left their soup out at room temperature without ever getting sick. Then again, we also ate raw garlic. Mm. Kenji. Yes. Can soup stay out overnight before refrigeration? <laughs> I, have, I have multiple personal connections to this um, <laughs> to this question. The first one being that I I made some chicken stock 
last night and it was late at night uh, and I didn't put it away before I went to bed. Um, I made it in a Dutch oven. I heated it up. I put the top on the Dutch oven and I just let it sit on the counter mm -hmm. until this morning. Um, and it's at room temperature and I'm going to be serving it to my family later this week. Um, so uh, I, I think you can see what, what side I'm going to come down on already. Um, so first of all, yeah, if you're making soup, especially if you put the lid on after it's been heated and it's a heavy lid, there's, um, you know, the soup is simmering, it's going to be sterile in there, there's nothing that's going to fall into it. Um, it's going to be fine sitting on the counter. Um, there's another reason why you wouldn't want to put it in the fridge immediately after making it. Um, and this is something that years ago, um, when I was at Cook's Illustrated, I tested. Um, I, I had a friend there, uh, Will Gordon, who's a who's a writer, I think he writes for Deadspin now. He's a a very funny writer, but um, but he had this joke uh, that he was a copy editor at Cooks Illustrated, and he had a, he had a joke that all we ever did was test whether um, soup cools effectively or not, um, because that was a, that was a very common test in the kitchen. Um, mm -hmm. But the test that I did was specifically um, I took various volumes of soup at various temperatures and put them into various fridges uh, around the test test kitchen, um, and then monitored the temperature of the soup and the temperature of the fridge. Um, Going from boiling hot down to room temperature, uh, putting soup in a in the fridge, especially if you're putting it in the pot that you cooked it in, um, is actually doesn't take much longer uh, at room temperature than it does in the fridge. You know, it take it takes I think it was something like ten percent longer uh, at room at room temperature to come down to room temperature than it does in the fridge to come down to room temperature. Um, the downside of putting it in the fridge is that it heats up everything else in your fridge. Um, so if you put you know a few quarts of soup. Uh, hot soup into the fridge, uh, the temperature of the fridge will go up above like 50, 55 degrees. And that's, um, no and good. that's bad. Yeah, that's bad for everything else in your fridge. Um, so what I recommend is leaving your soup out at room temperature until it comes down to room temperature and then transfer it to your fridge, um, you know, preferably in smaller containers, because uh, I don't like putting large pots into the fridge. And overnight is not is not going to you know, I don't want to, I don't want to give uh, advice right, that could get someone killed, but I do. I personally right. do it. You know, I, I leave the lid on. Um, I, I make sure I put the lid on while it's still hot. And then, and then I, I just leave it until I'm ready to put it away. Quick follow-up, Kenji. Ketchup in the refrigerator. Yes or no? We have one listener named Amelia who says, yes, put it in the fridge. That's what it says on the label. Refrigerate after opening. Mark says uh, that the acid, salt, and sugar make it spoilage proof. Yeah, uh, well, it's not it's not spoilage is not really the issue. Um, it comes down more to um, uh, appearance is the is the main thing that's going to change with ketchup out of the fridge. So, you know, mm -hmm. I the reason I know this is because um, at my restaurant, that's not my restaurant anymore, but uh, at Worstall, um, you know, we were a um uh, a sausage a sausage house and we had ketchup sure. in bottles um and early on we would leave the ketchup out at room temperature um and found quickly that the uh the ketchup kind of changes color it gets dark mm. um uh whereas if you refrigerate it it stays um the color it's supposed to but yeah when, once it gets exposed to oxygen that's why all that diner ketchup is that dark brown Almost. Yes, it's exposure yeah. to oxygen uh, and light that does that. So you want to, um, it's probably not, you know, it's not going to mold. It's not going to go bad. They, you know, it is very low water activity because it's very high in sugar and salt and acid. Um, uh, but if you want your Heinz ketchup to look as bright and fresh as the day you open the bottle, um, then you should keep it in the fridge. One last question. I had some chorizo the other morning, dried mm -hmm. chorizo. The Spanish kind. The Spanish kind, it, like mm -hmm. it was in a ring, you know, like, and then, but it was inside of a package uh -huh. and it had been open and I ate some of it 
And then I put the package back in the fridge where it had been. And it says, consume within 10 days after opening the package. Mm -hmm. And this had probably been a thousand days yeah. since I opened that. <laughs> Am I a ghost now? Am I dead? <laughs> you know, th those um, the labels that tell you expiration dates and best buy dates and all those things, um, those are all voluntarily placed on packaging by manufacturers. And they, they really are there only... Um, for quality, it's it's it has nothing to do with um, how safe it is to eat um, because those are sort of unpredictable things. It all depends on how much bacteria you have in your kitchen, how someone stores it. Yeah, um, it really is much more to do with the manufacturer wanting to make sure that someone eats it while it's going to be looking and tasting its best. Um, and you know, so the, I actually wrote I wrote an article um, about this um, in the New York Times um, early on in the pandemic when people were wondering how long is this you know, is the toilet paper I hoarded going to last, um, uh, which you can find online. But but yeah, those expiration dates are um, are not defined by anything other than the manufacturer wanting to make sure you uh, don't get mad at them because your ketchup changed color. We received a lot of emails about this. And so uh, everyone should go uh, Google Kenji Lopez Alt, New York Times, expiration, best buy date, and probably they'll find that article, right? Yeah. And they can mm -hmm. educate themselves. Fantastic. You can even just Google Kenji. I mean, you know about my life hack, John, which is Googling Kenji taters. <laughs> oh, those potatoes, those roast potatoes are so good. As long as it's not something that came up in, in the in the uh, classical Japanese novel, The Tale of Genji, uh, I think you'll probably be okay uh, Googling Kenji and whatever the ingredient is. K-E-N-J-I and the yeah. ingredient. Yeah. Let's take a quick break when we come back. Hot bread. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing, and wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org slash newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Judge Hodgman, we're taking a quick break from clearing the docket. You have a television program on television on the FXX network. It's called Dicktown. Yes, Jesse. But for how much longer? Not much. For this week is it. The end of Dicktown? Our final two mysteries of Dicktown season two air on FXX on Thursday night, March 31st, and then stream on Hulu the next day. Do John Hunchman and David Purefoy ever team up to solve mysteries again? 
Why does Lance need a ramp for his snake? And what secret clue is hidden deep inside of John Hunchman's Mind Palace? Will there be a season three of Dicktown? The answers to two of these questions are revealed this week, so please tune or stream in. As for the unanswered questions, A, I don't know why Lance needs a snake ramp, but I do know that Griffin Newman, who plays Lance, is going to get an Emmy for his portrayal. Please check him out this week. And as for season three, I don't know. I have no idea. But we do know that your support, especially you, the listeners of Judge John Hodgman, your support made the difference last time. So if you liked season two of Dicktown, please continue to tell your friends online and off, write a review, make a tweet, share your fan art, let them know about our season finale on Thursday on FXX. And by Friday, the 1st of April, April Fools, the whole Dicktown cycle, seasons one and two will finally be complete on Hulu at bit.ly slash Dicktown. Watching it after the fact really helps as well. And Jesse, with your okay, David and I will do an Ask Me Anything on the Max Fun subreddit on Friday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern. That's not an April Fool. That's a promise. Is that okay with you, Jesse? Absolutely not. It's Dicktown, kids. Bit.ly slash Dicktown, 3 p.m. on Friday, April 1st. You can do it, John. It's okay. Thanks, buddy. I mean, you're going to have to run it by K Plays Bass. It's one of the- One know, of the mods? One of the mods there. You can run it by K Plays Bass. We're going to do it anyway. 3 p.m. Eastern, April 1st. Maximum Fun subreddit. Ask me anything. Ask us anything. Me and David Reese. What do you have going on? Well, in my shop, the Put This On Shop, which is online at putthisonshop.com, of course, last week we had our big launch of um, trading cards, including, I even, look, there's so many Dune trading cards. Uh, There's Dinosaurs Attack trading cards, all kinds of packs of unopened trading cards from times of yore at putthisonshop.com. A little more sartorial, though only moderately more. I bought a huge lot of, you know, those brass belt buckles from the 70s? Of course. I love them. Uh, yeah, they're great. Uh, I bought a huge lot of name belt buckles. Happened to find one in there that said Jesse. So I've got a belt that says Jesse in it. Um, but I have I have not only like literally, <laughs> I think, a couple hundred <laughs> name brass name belt buckles from the 70s, but also states. And also an interesting variety. There's one that says four by four, um, uh-huh. all all kinds, all kinds of brass belt buckles, and a fair number of beautiful uh, silver belt buckles for those of you who are a little uh, classier rather than brassier. And if you've never had a brass belt buckle, or if you've never bought just a buckle on its own, they're so great, they're yeah. so cool, and it is so easy to go onto an online retailer and just get a belt. Yeah, simple as can be. Ship to your home, uh, doesn't even have to be the online retail you're thinking of, and you just, and there's no, you just, they have snaps. You snap yeah. the thing in, and all of a sudden you're wearing your name on your, beneath your navel. I bought mine from way. an online retailer that specializes in vintage and handmade goods. I found a belt maker there. I think it cost me $25 or something like that for a really high quality belt. So putthisonshop.com is the place to shop. And look, it's 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 not just belt buckles and trading cards. We have all kinds of beautiful things there. Uh, the perfect thing for your next gifting occasion, uh, Father's Day coming down the pike, maybe somebody's birthday, putthisonshop.com. Let's get back to the docket. Welcome back to the Judge John Hodgman podcast. We're here with the great Kenji Lopez-Alt. His new cookbook is called The Walk. You can buy it uh, from your local bookstore, online, or even from your local warehouse retailer right now. And in fact, if you go to the warehouse retailer, John, 
This is yeah. my recommendation. Yeah. Just buy a pallet and pass them out to your friends. Buy a pallet of the walks? Yeah, buy a pallet of the walk, pass it out to your friends. You got holidays coming up. People have birthdays. People might need to even out a table. Uh, right. All these reasons are great reasons to buy a full pallet. At the end of the day, you got a bonus pallet for your own use. Exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Just think about how much easier it's going to be to move stuff around with your forklift. You could repurpose it into a, into a, uh, you, you could build one of those pallet couches to sit and oh, yeah. read your collection of books. Yeah. Kenji, as you know, the past couple of years, we've seen a surge of people learning to bake bread for the first time. Mm -hmm. This huge influx of sourdough mother lovers. This is wonderful, of course, but no one is counting the human cost. Uh, we have two cases for you <laughs> of families <laughs> torn apart by bread. Uh -huh. A quick one and a more lengthy one. So here's the quick one. Jesse will read the more lengthy one. Question. Does rye bread after baking need to be cooled for 12 or more hours before consumption? Baker Brian mm -hmm. says that his research on the internet says yes. Mm -hmm. Cool that bread, that rye bread. But his partner, Allison, says he's denying her and their children that hot, hot bread they crave. <laughs> Do you have to cool rye bread? Is something special about rye bread you need to cool it for 12 hours? Um, well, not I wouldn't, I, I, you know, I'm not specifically rye bread, but in general, most bakers will tell you to let your bread cool before cutting it open, before selling it, before serving it. Um, the reason being, it's, it's not just about cooling. Um, it's, it's really about, um, the process uh, It's sort of like a controlled staling process. Um, so when people think of staling, they think of, um, you know, bread drying out, but really there's more to it than that. There's um, what's actually going on is the recrystallization of starch molecules. So starch, mm. um, when you mix it with water, it gelatinizes and it forms this kind of soft, you know, a very sort of soft, uh, sludgy mixture. And when you bake it, that sets up, you know, the air expands and that sets up into the, the gluten and the, you know, the strands and the bread that give it its structure. Um, bread fresh out of the oven, um, if you cut into it, it has a sort of gummy texture because the mm. gelatinized starch molecules have not had a chance to recrystallize and form a more solid form yet. Um, and so when you slice bread out of the oven, it's difficult to get a gauge of its sort of crumb structure and how well you let it, you know, how well you let it prove, how well you develop its gluten, all those things that bakers really care about. Um, and so a baker wants to, you know, they put in this work to get the crumb structure exactly right. And they want to be able to see and appreciate that. And they want, they want other to see their to own see. work. Exactly. And they want other yeah. people to see and appreciate it. Um, they don't care if their children are hungry for bread. They didn't want to see that crystallized crumb structure. Exactly. Um, and that that's why you, you know, bakers will typically allow their bread to cool before serving it. Um, you know, what I typically do when I, you know, I also started baking during the, uh, the during the pandemic. And um, I actually did this big um, piece for the New York Times where I, uh, you know, I did this update of the um, the old uh, no need bread article, uh, no need bread recipe, Jim Leahy's no need bread recipe and, and interviewed a ton of uh, bread bakers about this, um, all of whom uh, saw a huge uptake uptick in their book sales during the pandemic. But um, I baked a lot of bread and my general solution you're to this you're was- You're saying you're owed a piece. You're saying you're owed a piece. Yeah. <laughs> what I do is I take the bread out of the oven. I be terrible if something happened to this fresh bread of yours. <laughs> <laughs> I cut off a big chunk. Um, I tear it and eat it, and then I leave the rest to cool. Um, and you know the the part where you the part right where you cut it kind of dries out a little bit and and gets that sort of smeared look where you can't really exactly see the crumb structure, but you're left with enough bread that you can then on the um, other side of the bread you can see you can admire exactly. your work. Exactly. Admire your work. Mm -hmm. I got to tell you this, John. Yeah. In the early days of the pandemic, as as you know, Jen knows, it was a very, very difficult time for my family. 
and uh, I've moved since those times. And one of the things that I miss most is uh, I had these two neighbors, Chris and Stephanie. They happen to be Judge John Hodgman listeners. Hmm. Uh, they figured they figured it out later. Um, but Chris is a microbiologist, I think. And uh, he got really into bread baking and sourdough because of his particular nerdery. And uh, they started making really nice sourdough bread and, and bringing it to us when we were like, you know, could barely move from yeah. uh, our life circumstances. And uh, yeah, I guess I'm just saying thanks to them because they listen to this and, uh, you know, feel free to come down the hill and bring us bread at our new house. <laughs> <laughs> so it's those two things, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, uh, baking bread as as with all cooking, it's an it's an act of generosity to it, and you know that actually plays into our next case. Why don't you read it, Jesse? Here's a case from Laura. Like many during the pandemic, my father Wayne learned to bake sourdough bread. He's very good at it, and we love eating it. But I have come to resent the process especially when I come to visit for the weekend. The day before baking, the dough must be folded at regular intervals. He says he can't leave the house that day or the bread will be ruined. <laughs> On baking days, he must bake the bread before we can do anything as a family. Scheduling our lives around the bread is hard and leads to charged arguments in which he threatens to throw the bread in the trash. <laughs> he, he also won't let us cut the bread when it's slightly warm because it's, quote, not ready yet. Ah, uh -huh, this again. Mm -hmm. Even his four-year-old grandchild begging for bread has not swayed him. Kenji, shouldn't mm -hmm. we be allowed to eat the bread when it's slightly warm? And is there a way to make a good bread that is less onerous? Well... <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I think, you know, I think the person making the bread should be the one that gets to decide when uh, the bread is eaten. Um, mm -hmm. That said, I do think uh, he should probably give in a little bit because I, I mean, I think it's I think it's cruel to <laughs> to not be allowed to to uh, break into a warm loaf of bread to to see the steam coming out. Um, and to and to think to yourself, oh, how is the butter going to melt into that hole there? And then watch as the butter does, you know, because you can't do that with a fully cooled, um, you know, what a baker would call a proper loaf of bread. Um, so you know, Wayne, I, I, Wayne, the baker is not wrong that that it is not ready yet once it, when it just comes out of the oven. It is not at its peak perfection, as you mentioned earlier. The, yeah. the bread is not crystallized and the, the crumb is not set. Right. By a, by a baker's, um, from a baker's perspective, it's not at peak readiness yet. Is there a way that Wayne can give his four-year-old grandchild what he wants, that mm -hmm. soft, hot, warm bread that butter just sinks into, while also measuring the crumb structure? Could he, should he, does he need to make two loaves? One for one for the trash people in his house and one for him or what? <laughs> what I would suggest to him is to start the bread making process before the family comes to visit for the weekend. Start it a day ahead so that you can by yourself be at home uh, doing all this stuff. Uh, and so that the bread is ready to bake the next day um, while you are out. You know, you go out with your family, you come home, you bake the bread uh, and make a little bit of extra. You know, you're from the recipe that he attached. It looks like he's working with baker's percentages, which means that it's very easy to scale. You know, scale the whole recipe up by 50 percent, 
take that extra 50% and turn it into small, you know, dinner rolls, something like that, that you can bake alongside the other one or bake uh, after the other one um, that you can feed to your family warm. And then the next day you can serve them the, uh, you know, the big loaf that you've made uh, to your particular specifications. I think it's a little bit of extra work, but, you know, I think you, the, um, the family harmony uh, and pleasing your four-year-old uh, grandchild is probably worth it. And your daughter, presumably, as well. And your daughter, yeah. 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 So you mentioned the recipe. Laura did send in a picture of this recipe, um, the bread plan for February the 4th, 2022. I wonder wonder if if Wayne, her father, knows she took this picture. (laughs) As well as pictures of the two loaves, which uh, they look pretty good to me. Did Did you see those photos of these two loaves of bread? I did. Yes. Yeah. They do look pretty good. They look like pretty good loaves. Like I want to eat them out of that oven right now. The level of specificity in this bread plan is incredible to me. Like either Wayne was some kind of project manager uh, before he (laughs) took up bread baking, apparently full time, uh, or possibly this is how he learned to make sourdough in the Navy or something. (laughs) I think it's a new thing. I think he learned during the pandemic. I mean, he He's got the URL for the recipe right here from food52.com, table loaf. But yeah, this is this recipe is intense. I didn't mean to cut you off there, Jesse. Was there something else you wanted to say? I just, 93 degree water. He's got, he's got <laughs> his, he's got his folds timed out in military time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this, this is not uncommon. This is not uncommon for, um, for bread recipes. 1430, fifth fold. And, you know, Laura pointed out that that he has a system of awarding certain lines of the recipe, little trophy emojis. <laughs> so the whole bread plan gets one to five trophies. Proofing an oven with light on temperature was between 75 and 78, three trophies. This is obviously a love language to himself. Of some <laughs> kind. I do like the also the I am very happy followed by a smiley face emoji. I'm so to, to, glad you to, caught that. I mean, just in case you didn't know what a happy person looks like. <laughs> to me, to me, you know, we 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 tr- we try to find the crux of the case here. Whenever someone has a dispute with their loved one, their partner, their roommate, or whatever, there's usually the surface of the dispute, and then there's the crux, the underneath stuff that is being dealt with here. The crumb, the crumb, if you will. I don't think Wayne is a crumb, but I think he's being <laughs> a little bit of a crumb bum to his family. No offense, Wayne. <laughs> But I understand you because this this one line was so t- excellent pre-shape with good tension, lots of bubbles. I am very happy. It was just, it was this little poem to himself. <laughs> because I, I presume, and from context, that if you're visiting your dad and he is a grandfather, that you are visiting your dad, Laura, as an adult. So that suggests, and this is a new thing for him, and that suggests that this bread baking is a weird older dad hobby. And in a sense... This isn't about making bread for his family. I mean, he might as well be in the basement all weekend tending to his model railroad or organizing his beta max video cassette collection, old car races or whatever, <laughs> you know? And the reason that he's doing this, I think is the reason that all, all of us now, Kenji, your kids are little, right? I have a five-year-old and a six month old. Yeah. yeah. Enjoy your babies. Jesse Thorne. Enjoy your baby. Uh, J- Jennifer Marmer. Enjoy your babies. I don't got babies anymore. I got one. I got one out of the house. I got one getting ready to go. You know, you know, I'm going to be organizing my Betamax cassettes pretty soon. <laughs> this is what dads do. I got nothing to raise anymore. Neither does Wayne. He's got nothing to father anymore. But the mother, the sourdough starter, 
and he's uh, he's distracting himself from the loss in his life and consoling himself. And all the fear and solitude of the ongoing pandemic only makes this more acute. So Wayne, I get your pain and confusion, but the difference between organizing your Betamax cassettes and baking bread is cooking is supposed to be about generosity. Yes, it is a hobby, much like painting a D&D miniature. It is a, it is a solitary art of self-perfection, but it is also you are feeding your family. And I agree with you, Kenji. Like, organize your bread baking around your family. Don't make your family organize themselves around your bread baking. <laughs> and honestly, Laura, I would be plain with him about this. Like, I would say... Uh, I'm not visiting and, and I believe this grandchild is not Laura's child, but Laura's, uh, niece or nephew. It's like, you know, you're hurting us when you, when you yell at us and say, you're going to throw the bread in the garbage. I mean, that's no fun for anybody. That's not good. Wayne, I appreciate that you're managing your transition from vitality and relevance to being a weird older dad, but you need to be generous with your bread, not stingy. Kenji, so grateful to you for taking all this time to be on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me again. How great it is to get to talk to you every single time. Kenji's books are solid gold. Uh, the Walk is the new one. Uh, the Food Lab is the classic. Uh, both of those are available for your food and eating needs. He's, you Don't can forget also, Every Night is Pizza Night. Yeah, Every Night is Pizza Night is children's book. Um, a wonderful children's book, a best-selling children's book. Um, you can find all of those in bookstores. You can also find Kenji uh, writing the occasional column in the New York Times. Um, you can find him gallivanting about uh, the Seattle area on Instagram, uh, flipping people's wigs uh, when he comes to there. This is like the new, you know, in Los Angeles for many years, John, we had Jonathan Gold driving around in his weird pickup truck. Uh -huh. uh, going into going to restaurants and and asking them what they what they ate in their home village and if they can cook that for him, um, <laughs> and uh, Kenji is doing that only it's for that one kind of uh, that one kind of hamburgers that people in Seattle like so much. What's that called? Dicks. Dicks? Yeah, Dicks. Um, Which is good. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, check out all of those Kenji things. Uh, you can also he's got a huge archive of of classics over at uh, Serious Eats. Um, and some new stuff coming up actually on Serious Eats. Ooh la la, I love it. Um, thank you, Kenji. Thank, thanks for all your great work. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. I noticed that J. Kenji Lopez-Alt because as you know, John Hodgman, Jesse Thorne, Jennifer Marmer, we're the J squad. <laughs> Our main man in Maine, Joel Mann, along with Gene Gray, guest bailiff Gene Gray, and summertime fun time guest bailiff, Jaunty Monty Belmonte, the J squad. You're always welcome here, with or without your first initial. Thank you very much, Kenji. <laughs> Thank you. The docket is clear. That's it for another episode of Judge John Hodgman. Our huge thanks to our friend, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt, for joining us today. Our producer is Jennifer Marmer. Our editor is Valerie Moffat. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesse Thorne and at Hodgman. We're on Instagram at Judge John Hodgman. Make sure to hashtag your Judge John Hodgman tweets, hashtag JJHO. And check out the Maximum Fun subreddit at maximumfun.reddit.com. You know what Reddit I've been uh, looking at lately, John? Uh, Submechanophobia? No, dogs on roofs. <laughs> Pretty good. It's a whole hey, subreddit for roof dogs. We're looking for your springtime related cases. Spring has arguably sprung. 
Disputes we're looking for involve gardens or flowers or seasonal allergies or anything had to do with some of the great uh, spring holidays, Passover, Easter, Idal Fitter, and other spring holidays. What about Irish spring soap? <whistles> Clean as a whistle. Spring water. <laughs> spring healed Jack, the jumping demon of English folklore. Oh, what if you're the guy who rented my wife a house when she was teaching in Springs, New York, uh, 25 years ago, and you now want to see compensation for the sofa that her cat destroyed? Good luck, buddy. <laughs> You're not getting it. Any cases related to spring in any way, be creative. Let us know at MaximumFun.org slash JJHO. That's MaximumFun.org slash JJHO. And look, we'll hear any dispute. We're looking especially for spring disputes right now, but no case is too big or too small. Uh, submit your cases at MaximumFun.org slash JJHO. You are the lifeblood of our program. We'll talk to you next time on the Judge John Hodgman podcast. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.